if you have your Bible with you today, if you will turn to two places, we'll spend most of our time in Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 16, but then you'll also want to spend and put your thumb at least in the place of John chapter 6 as we get uh, rolling today. Uh, Today we're talking about what it looks like to make space in our life. I I know with a lot of um, things, as we talk about our relationship with God, it's not always the how-to, it's the how can I have time for that? How how do I make time for that? And and our world doesn't um, offer itself up to us that way all the time, and so um, we're as we put out our guidebooks, as we have the, the uh, Who's Your One display out in the foyer, all of these are tools to help you. It was, it's interesting since we started who's your, who's your One and the secret is out, you don't just have to limit the one person you're praying, you know, person you're praying for to one. You can pray for three or four, it's, it's totally up to you, right? And uh, I was holding the door at uh, my son's play last night, just being the, the doorman and just talking to people coming in. And one of the guys just stops and he says, so what do you teach? Right. I said, Jesus. I said, I don't work here at the school. I, I serve at First Baptist Church in Pearland. So I, I talk about Jesus. <laughs> and he just said, do you want to talk about Jesus? It was great. He said, oh, 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 I go to this church. I'm like, I didn't know that. It was just hilarious. So I said, well, that's good. What are y'all talking about in church? So whether he wanted to or not, it was just me opening that up. And we just started talking about Jesus and people are coming in. We're like, hi, welcome to the show. Let's talk about what God's telling you. And we just had an incredible conversation. And most of the time when I'm holding a door at a play or something like that, I'm just thinking, welcome people in, hold the door for the play. Um, But because those balls remind me to make space and to keep space in my life for those who don't know Christ yet who who I need to be lifting up in prayer holding the door on a on a weekend night for a play at a school um, I have space and so I just want to encourage you to make space in your life for those conversations last week you may not have had someone to write down and and maybe your prayer has been Lord put into my heart and my mind those who need you make space for that church it doesn't happen automatically have you noticed that a void is a vacuum have you noticed that have you ever tried to slow your life down anyone ever tried to slow it down like you said we're doing stuff every night of the week this is not okay and so you stop doing something on one night what happens Something, something else fills it in. It's like, oh, you have time for me now. And so it pours into it. Anytime we make a void, things get sucked into it. And, and, and here's a great example. I was looking this week about overcrowding and overcrowding led me to stuff and stuff led me to a list. So let me read you a little, uh, some facts about stuff in America. All right, this is the quiz part. You don't have to say the answer out loud. How many items exist in the average American's home? How many items exist in the average American's home? You can say it to your spouse, and that way you can both be wrong. It's totally fine. How many items exist? All right, are you ready? The average American has 300,000 items in their home. That's on average. Someone's going home and being like, I can't be average. And your husband's like, yes. Have you seen the closet? (laughs) The average size of the American home has nearly tripled over the last 50 years, and still one out of every 10 Americans rent off-site storage. Um, While 25% of the people, um, 25% of people with a two-car garage 
don't have room to park cars inside of them. That feels low to me. That feels low. Uh, and only 32% have room for one vehicle in their two-car garage. The United States has, has 50,000 storage facilities. There is in America 7.3 square feet of storage for every American in storage facilities. Every man, woman, and child, there's seven square feet for you. That sounds like a slogan, doesn't it? Where's your seven? So kind of walking into that. Um, British research said the average 10-year-old has how many toys? How many toys does the average 10-year-old have? And how many times, and how many do they play with daily? That's a better question. The average 10-year-old has 238 toys in their home but they actually just play with 12 of them. They have 238 toys. Grandparents, that was for you. Please send money. Your poor children said. Ladies, I apologize if you leave at this moment. I, I'm, I'm sorry. The average American woman owns 30 outfits. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothes annually and throws away 65 pounds of it every year. 65 pounds, $1,700. We I should have used that in our giving sermon last week. That's really good. Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education. Man, there goes that debt forgiveness plan. <laughs> Just stop buying so many shoes, watches, and jewelry. Over the lifetime, over the course of the lifetime, you and I will spend 153 days looking for lost items. Over your lifetime, 153 days looking for lost items. If you didn't know, that's uh, 368 hours. Um, that's pretty amazing to me. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. And stuff, it comes in, doesn't it? Clutter, it's an easy friend. That's why they put those, uh, those uh, displays at the aisle right before you check out. Everything's under a certain amount, and they are meant to get your child in trouble, and you're meant to give in. You see, we don't have a lot of room in our life but we keep putting more in. We keep stacking in one on top of the other and all of a sudden the problem becomes very real that we have no room for valuable things. We just have a longing for junk. So let's take it off the physical and get into the relational and spiritual a little bit. Let me ask you this question. Do you often find or have you found regularly, I won't define often for you, that you don't have the time and energy to do something that you know is important. So instead, you fill the time with something that is unimportant. Have you found that? Have you, have you found yourself knowing that you have important things to do, but you are too exhausted, you are too tired, there's not enough time, so you fill it with the unimportant. Don't, this, this is not the confession, we'll have that at the end, right? 
I can't tell you how many times I have been needing to work on something for church or I've been needing to sit down and write something, but I'm so exhausted and I've told myself, have you ever this? I don't have the energy to do this right, right now. Have you ever said that? And so you know what you do? You're fantastic at reading a book, watching a TV, or playing a video game. You know what I mean? You're, you're out, we get outstanding at things that are unimportant because we tell ourselves we don't have the energy to do important. So here's by definition what we're doing. We're pushing further out the valuable things and we are making more and more time for the inner things. And so spiritually, that, spiritually, what happens is that starts creating a barrier in our spirit between us and the things of God. I want to read you a verse. You can write it down and reference it later. If you want to pull up your phone, you can. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Listen to what the Bible says about a man named Demas, okay? That's what the Bible says about Demas. For Demas, Paul writes to Timothy, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, now this is a pretty amazing thing because Demas wasn't a bad person. Uh, he, he went and he traveled with Paul. Paul references, asked people to pray for Demas, talks about how there's part of Paul's small group, quite honestly. They're active and engaged in, in their life and ministry. He's been traveling. But somewhere along the way, this longing, this overcrowding got in his life and it started to separate himself from the vision that God had placed on his heart for the king and in doing that started actually to create separation between him and the people who also had that vision on their heart you see the more overcrowded our life gets with longings or things that are semi-important so to speak the more they distance us between uh, God they tend to start distancing us between other people they, they tend to start moving us away from people who are running after God because not they're running somewhere else, but we just started piling on junk after junk after junk. Overcrowding pushed him away from a small group, the kingdom mission, and the God he serves. He just didn't have time to give Jesus his all. And probably if he is in America, he would say, but God understands. But Jesus, he knows my heart. Listen, there are a lot of people in Scripture who have similar overcrowding problems as Demas. I think back to Lot's wife in the Old Testament, right? Lot's wife coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's destroying the town. As they're leaving the town, remember what she does? She looks back. Her future is in front of her. Salvation is in front of her. Life and hope is in front of her. Death is behind her. But she has so much of that spiritual junk, relational junk in her life that in her longing, she turns around longing for what is behind her and not what's in front of her. And it costs her her life. I think about Judas, actually. Judas had this idea about the Messiah. He followed Jesus. He walked closely with him. He shared meals with him. Church, in the middle of all of these things, I think Judas believed Jesus was the Messiah. And then somewhere along the way, he started overcrowding his spiritual life with unmet expectations, dreams of how it should have been, the realities of how he thought it should play out. And these junk items started filling his life and pushing him away from Jesus. In the end, it pushed him so far away from Jesus, he no longer counted him as the Messiah. 
Church, overcrowding is something scripturally that happens in and out. The rich young ruler, he was called to give up everything, all of his junk and make space for Jesus and he couldn't do it. He had too much junk. 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The first time I read that, it begged the question, how do I stop from overcrowding my life? And as immediately as I wrote those words, here's what I thought. That's the right, that's the wrong side of the right question. See, the wrong side of the right question is how do I stop the overcrowding? The right side of the right question is how do I make space for the one who is valuable? See, one focuses on all the junk that's in my life. The other one talks about abandoning and making space for the king so that the rags never cover the riches again. See, the truth is every believer is challenged with this call to Thessalonica. We have too much going on in our world. If we don't pay attention, if we don't make space, if we are intentional about following hard after God, then eventually the call to Thessalonica, the call to abandon the mission for the, the life that you pictured instead will be so strong that it could pull you away from the mission of Christ, pull you away from the body of Christ and isolate you in an overcrowded, hoarded life that looks like everybody else's. So what do we do? How do we make space for this most important relationship that ever existed? How do we make space to embrace the word of God in a way that authentically defines us day in and day out? I want to take you back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. We'll start looking at the first four verses in Exodus. And, and the background of the story is this. If you're not familiar with the story, the, the, the picture is this. Uh, the people of God have been slaves in Egypt. There's a story of how they got there. We'll go through it another day. They're slaves in Egypt. God sets them three free miraculously. In fact, they leave towns with the spoils of war without ever having to lift a hand. And in the spoils of war, God pulls them out. He parts the Red Seas. He gets them to the other side. The seas close, cut them off. They're no longer being pursued by the enemy. God is supernaturally intervening. The more they chase God, the more they see him for who he is. It's amazing. And then two months into the journey, very short, it hasn't been that long, we find ourselves in Exodus 16. Read with me verse 1 through 4. The Bible says it this way. They sent out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, there's our time stamp, after they had departed from the land, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. For you and for the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. You see, church, in the middle of this, 
I want you to know God has just ripped them out from an oppressive slavery of life and God has made space for them. And I want you to know when you and I follow the Lord to make space, it is a shock to our system. It is shocking. And, and quite honestly, like jumping in a, a cold pool, that shock, our body, our spirit, we don't always know how to handle it because we are so entrenched in this day after day life of slavery to the things of this life, to this world. And so this shock happens. The people of, of Israel walking out, they jump in the pool of freedom in Christ. And here's what happens. They become hungry. And instead of saying, God, we're hungry, can you provide for us? They do what weary people do. They whine. Amen? I mean, moms, are you with me? How do we know when a child is tired? They, they whine. Ladies, how do you know when your husband's tired? <laughs> you whine. Weary people whine. Spiritually weary people whine spiritually. Spiritually, physically weary people whine physically. Emotionally weary people whine emotionally. And the people of God here, saved, rescued from a life of slavery, abuse, and destruction, are now, because they can't fathom, they don't understand the shock to their system, what do they do? They start to romanticize slavery. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Who would romanticize slavery? Well, almost all creation. Because what's happening here is they're saying, we don't understand tomorrow. And that's taking too much out of us to trust you. And because we at least know how to survive the overcrowding of life, we long for the rags and the junk and the beatings and the abusive and the weariness of what it's like to be a slave to this world. give us something church I want you to know I think it's all right for you to lift up your weariness to God this is an amazing spot in verse 4 the Lord doesn't rebuke them in this moment in fact here's what he says he says I'm going to provide from them supernaturally bread from heaven and every day all they have to do is collect it all, then they just have to bake it up and it'll be great, it'll sustain them I'll take care of them but my provision is approving you see church this is, this is the heart test of our life this is how you can know how deep the things of, of, of life of sin are crowded in your life when Christ, when the Lord answers your prayer and provides for you, it, that provision will prove how deep and how protected the hooks of this world are in you will a taste of his goodness will it challenge your spirit to the fullness of who he is or will you continue to long for the things of the past the things of overcrowding the things of this world see making space shocks the system but God is good verse 13 in your Bible read with me through verse 18 so you can know how it works in the evening quail came and covered the camp in the morning dew laid on the camp 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When people of Israel saw it, and they said to one another, what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that is the Lord that the Lord God has given you to eat. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, and you shall. Each one take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his house or his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more, some less. But when they measured it, it was an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had nothing or lacked nothing. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. See, I want you to know the difference between cleaning out junk and making space in your relationship with God. Cleaning out junk is staying in slavery, but tidying up the things that you're committed to. That, that's, that's part of it. But, but Christ, the Lord, he doesn't work that way. You see, for him, when he makes space, he fills it. He, he didn't design you to be empty. He didn't design you, Matthew chapter 11, to be weary and heavy laden. He designed you for rest. He designed you for rejuvenation. He designed you for the fullest of life. And so when we, when we allow the Lord to be the space maker in our life, we're not just cleaning out the junk. We're leaving it behind and taking a step and following him. And when we follow him, his goodness fills that space because you weren't designed to be empty. And what I love here is this is now the test in our relationship. What he's saying is, are you in this for my vision, for my vision, and for my goodness, or do you just want to try and take advantage of me and try to make the things of me subject to the whims of sin? And and here's the test. How do we know if our relationship with God is abusive from our way to his as if that were possible? Here's how we know. The people in the desert, they were told, gather one omer for each person in the house. Cook it, it'll be all you need. But there were very many that gathered more than they needed. They wanted to see what would happen if they held over a little extra of God's blessing outside of his commands. And the answer was rot, bugs, maggots. The Lord will not let us abuse his relationship. But when we abuse our relationship with God, he gives us the same punishment as we have left behind. Rot of unhealthy overcrowding that sin brings. His proving, his provision is approving. So will you follow Christ and then allow him to fill the space that he has created in your life? It doesn't take much from you. In fact, I looked at the words again and I thought, what did the disciples or what did the people in Israel have to do to fill this space? Well, look with me in chapter 16, verse 13 through 18 again. First of all, it says that God sent, verse 14, a dew. 
And on the face of the wilderness was a fine, a flake-like thing, a fine frosting. In fact, the people looked at it and said, what is this? And when there's no real definition for manna, and so a lot of scholars believe manna just literally meant, what is this, right? Ladies, we would hate for that to be some of the names of our dishes, right? It's, what is this? We get the quail. What is this? So, so in this moment, God provided their daily bread. What did they have to do? All they had to do was look for it. It wasn't a scavenger hunt. It was just right in front of them. They had, to, they had to lift their chin up. That's it. They had to look up from the junk around them. They had to leave their tent. They, they had to, to, to leave behind all the things that they thought were important. All they had to do was look up. Church, here's what you and I should know. If you want the Lord to fill up your house, every room, every corner, lights on, the Spirit of God filling the temple, Isaiah chapter 6 stuff, the first thing you and I have to do is, is look up. Look up from the TV. Look up from the game set. Look up from the worries of your life. Look up from your work schedule. Look up from your disappointments and look for the Lord's provision. Amen. And church, it will be found in following what he's already promised to do. Taste and see that I'm good. Lord, where are you cooking? Meditate on my word. Lord Jesus, give me something to stew on. Don't forsake the gathering of, 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 the, of the meeting together, of the saints. Lord, who's running hard after you and who can I run with? All we have to do is look up. It's, it's not much. But, but there's more to it than just knowing that God is available. See, God put it on the ground and he provided all they would need. He said, all you'll need to stay, stay well, you can get an omer for every person, quail and, and this sweet bread stuff, and we're gonna be good. God provided exactly what he needs, every person needed. And what did people have to do? They just had to pick it up. They just had to collect it. I mean, church, if, if we were driving by your houses, throwing bags of money in the front yard, saying we want to pay off everyone's mortgage and you looked out the window and said oh that's nice you know what I wish they'd have just put it on the doorstep that's too much work I believe our neighbors would gladly pick that up for us you see it's not work to gather in the goodness of God but what is worked is we try to, when we try to put everything in the right place and invite God into our overcrowded mess. Instead of making space for him, we just try to rearrange. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells the story about a man who is in his house and it says that there was a demon in his house, this parable. And as the demon left, the man swept up, he cleaned up and he straightened everything out. He had a very nice house then. There was a lot more room in it. The demon was out. He could see all the junk in his life. And so he's tried to straighten up his life, tried to clean up the overcrowding. And the Bible says in the words of Christ that when the demon came back in, he saw there were extra rooms. And so he and many friends came and took over the space. 
And the man was worse off in the end than he was in the beginning. Why? Because God is not calling you to clean up his life. God is calling you to pick your chin up and make space for what he has in front of you and to collect the goodness that he's provided for you. Not just to sprinkle his goodness on the junk in your life, but to empty your hands and draw it near. Church, in the midst of that, what God puts on us as believers is to come and taste and see that he is good because in the end, not only does he put it out in front of us, not only does he make sure it is all that we need, he asks us to enjoy them to the fullest. Like, that's it. At the end of the day, following Christ ends in enjoying him in the way that he knows will be the best for you. It's not about getting enough stuff in your life to make him feel welcome. It's about being willing to say, it's gonna shock my system, but I'm gonna step away from my junk. And I'm gonna put my eyes exactly on where you're going. And Lord, if you put quail in the sky or flakes in the ground, I want to gather them up and just enjoy them. God is not asking you and I to be the hunter or the provider or the manager. God's not asking those things. He's asking us to follow him. And in that, God becomes the manager, the hunter, the provider, the caretaker. In those things, we follow God and we do those things for his glory. And what we do is we taste and see that he is good. Church, in this picture, manna, and we have little, little bags of, of what we think manna uh, might taste like for the kids. And they're welcome to taste that. And mom and dad, you're welcome to taste that before they do. We won't judge you. But, but I want you to know the manna was a miracle but it wasn't the prize you see the manna wasn't supposed to make the the people of israel stand still and say god i want to stay in the desert and eat manna and quail for the rest of my life it was simply to give them a taste of how good god was so that they could pursue him more until they understood the fullness of who he was I think even when they got into the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey, the Bible says this, the manna stopped. There's no, no more need for the appetizer when an entree has come. But the promised land wasn't even the final destination. And a good meal ends in dessert. That's when we're full. In John chapter 6, verse 32 through 40 says it this way. This is Christ. The Bible says, then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now check it out. Jesus says in verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. All the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven. 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up in the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, stop. Pick up your chin. Don't look at what you need to do. Don't look at what you have to offer. You look at the provision of God in Jesus Christ. This is the will of my Father, that whoever looks at the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Believing means that you're no longer just looking out the window wishing you had time to collect the life. Remember, the people didn't know what it was. What, what is that outside? Moses said, it's bread from heaven. We don't know what bread of heaven tastes like, looks like. Do you believe it's good for you? Do you believe it's provision of God? If you do, then collect it. Get, his, get all that you need. Jesus is fully sufficient for you. In every need, in every moment, at every angle, he is enough. He's the greatest mathematician. He's the most incredible parent. He, he is the, the, the most unbelievable counselor, physician. Do you believe not only that Jesus is good, you can look out the window, but the will of the Father is that you, that you look up and that you collect Jesus, collect his word, that you run hard after him, that he becomes your all in all, your everything. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And here's the promise. And I will raise him up on the last day. Enjoy life. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, church. And, and he has designed us to delight in him forever. The good life. It, and you can't impress God. You, you, you can't show him all that you've done and, and, and work it in. You don't want to just make it into heaven smelling with a little singe of fire on you, like phew, avoided it. Church, it is the will of God that you look out your window, that you go out and believe that Jesus Christ is life in every moment, in every situation, and that in him, you know God will provide your every need. Just enjoy him. That's why this first quarter of our year is so important. That's why we're walking through times of solitude, challenges of fasting, challenges of meditation and scripture memorization. It's why these blue cards are in your chairs. Church, God designed you for better than what you're experiencing. But you will only find it by selling out having Jesus Christ rule every moment, every second of your life. And if you're saying, I don't know how, that's all right. The first thing you do is look up. Just collect him bit by bit. He's the best teacher you'll ever find.
Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Lord, it's incredible to think. I, if I were in the wilderness or in the, the desert with this group in Exodus, what it would be like to see these flakes in the ground. I've never seen provision like that before. I've never known what it could be, taste like, smell like. I'm not 100% sure what to do with it. Lord, I, I can't imagine how many recipes were invented in this moment. But Lord God, I, I pray, Lord, that I would do then what I desire today. To gather of your provision exactly what you want for me, for my family, for my friends, for my community. And that I would engage it and enjoy it and share it and delight in it. Father, we have more than manna because we have the Christ, the Son of God, the bread from heaven. Lord Jesus, I know that opportunity is available to us today. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to impress. Stop wallowing in your circumstances. Look up. God is good. Believe. Draw near to him. Taste and see that he's good. And delight in the life that he gives eternally. Father, if there's a man or woman, boy or girl that doesn't know or has never known that goodness, Father, today I pray that you would pick their chin up and that they would believe, God, that you are good and Lord and sovereign and they would embrace every word you speak, Lord, and that you would impact their eternity forever. God, let us be a church that delights in making space for the best that could ever be. In Jesus' name.